1: Hello and welcome to this day in esoteric political history from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan this day, August 2nd, 1980, Ronald Reagan arrives in Mississippi, where he will speak at the Neshoba County Fair the following day. Reagan had become the Republican nominee for president a few weeks earlier, and this was, in many ways, his general election kickoff event. The speech he would give would cause a controversy, particularly for its use of one two-word phrase. We're going to talk about that phrase, the location of this speech, and since this is our Sunday election edition, we'll talk a bit about the 1980 election in general, Ronald Reagan's first campaign, and how it may help us think through this year's election. Here, as always, is Nicole Hammer of Columbia. Hello, Nikki. Hey, Jody. And Kevin M. Cruz, uh, history professor at Princeton, is back with us. Hello, Kevin, and happy Sunday. Happy Sunday.
2: Kevin, where a candidate chooses to kick off his or her campaign, whether it's the primary campaign or the general election, I think tends to be a pretty big signal of what kind of campaign they're hoping to run. And in this case, there was a lot of symbolism packed into this one event. So it's the Neshoba County Fair, which is in Mississippi, as you mentioned, um, a place where politicians, particularly white Southern politicians, had spent a lot of time in the preceding decades. And that two-word phrase that you mentioned, Jody, states' rights is one of those phrases that can be unobjectionable in certain contexts, but in this context has a a particular meaning. And and Kevin, could you explain to us what meaning emerges when you combine Neshoba County Fair with states' rights?
3: It's important that Reagan kicks off his general election campaign at the Neshoba County Fair, because the Neshoba County Fair uh, takes place just outside Philadelphia, Mississippi. And Philadelphia, Mississippi was infamous, uh, even in 1980, as the site Uh, of the murders of three civil rights workers in the Mississippi summer of 1964. Jim Cheney, uh, Andrew Goodman, and Mickey Schwerner uh, had been brutally murdered there with the complicity of local police. And so that phrase, states' rights, and the spin that Reagan puts on it during that speech, where he says that there were a lot of domestic issues which need to be left up to state and local forces, that resonates all across the South. As a phrase used by segregationists, but in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where the local police have been complicit uh, in the murder and cover up of those civil rights workers' assassinations, uh, that phrase really seems to stick out.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important that, you know we could nitpick about the use of certain phrases in certain places, but this is a place that the Reagan campaign specifically chose in order to go get what one of the campaign strategists said was the George Wallace vote. This idea that you were going to get the southern racist white Democrat to vote for the Republican rather than for the Democratic candidate. And this was in many ways a play and in many ways a, a dog whistle, as we can talk about, for the exactly those voters.
1: But explain that dog whistle a little bit more. What is saying I believe in sp- states rights specifically mean in this context as, you know, as he presents it?
2: States rights is sort of a libertarian code for white racism in a lot of ways. And why is it that? Because the federal government was being called out again and again to the South in order to protect the rights of black people after the Civil War, during the Civil Rights Movement. States' rights was about saying, no, get the government out of here. We'll take care of our own racial affairs.
3: Well, uh, soon after the speech, Andrew Young, who'd been uh, a top aide to Martin Luther King Jr., uh, wrote an op-ed in The Washington Post where he really explained how the, what he called the code words, of states' rights and the setting of Philadelphia, Mississippi, meant to him, and he recalled that in 1966, King had gone to Philadelphia, Mississippi, and, and given a speech. And at that speech, he King said, "You know, the the murderers of those three civil rights workers are probably within earshot of my voice." And, and a man called out, "Yeah, we're right behind you." So that phrase, states' rights, and that location, Philadelphia, Mississippi—if you had one of the other—I think it might not have set off the alarm bells. But to have those two in combination and, as Nikki noted, to have it as the kickoff of the general election campaign was just unmistakable uh, to a lot of people. That, that here was uh, a Republican candidate who had been a, a strong backer of Goldwater in 1964, that same summer when Goldwater had voted against the Civil Rights Act and the civil rights workers were killed, to come down to Neshoba, Mississippi, to campaign on a promise of states' rights and to leave locals to their own affairs as the kickoff moment really uh, struck a lot of civil rights workers, at least, as an obvious sign that Reagan was trying to, to win over the white Southern conservatives who might have hated the civil rights movement.
2: Yeah, I think Goldwater is a really important figure in this conversation because it's Goldwater who in 1964 says, you go hunting where the ducks are. And the ducks, he saw, were not in the black vote. He didn't believe that black voters were going to stay with the Republican Party. So what you had to do was go after the racist white vote. And Goldwater votes against the Civil Rights Act. And he does so with a sort of libertarian instead of an openly racist argument. And that gets us on the path both of a Southern strategy for the Republican Party to try to pick up White Democratic Southerners um, but also why you start to get to this language of states' rights
3: right and, and so and Goldwater himself claims that he's in favor of integration in his uh, a book conscious of a conservative he says that he favors integration uh, on, a, on a private level he's, He thinks it's all well and good for uh, school children of different races to get together but he says the federal government has no right to force southern states to adopt that policy and for segregationists that's all that matters. And that line that he was simply promoting a kind of a libertarian view of what the government could not couldn't do is one I think many of his supporters cling to even to this day. But we have to remember, at the time, Goldwater was on the ground in places like Mississippi talking to the White Citizens Council's radio show in 1959, appearing before segregationist audiences, applauding Strom Thurmond for his filibusters against the Civil Rights Acts, for his party switch in 1964, Goldwater praises him and welcomes him to the GOP, Uh, that he was fine uh, with segregationists. And he had been seeking to get the the George Wallace vote in 64, and so it's no surprise that Reagan seeks
1: to get the George Wallace vote,
3: as uh, that Mississippi councilman said, in
1: 1980. I want to read the the quote in which this phrase appears because I think it's it's interesting to sort of parse the context in which it lies. So Reagan says, quote, I still believe the answer to any problems lie with the people. I believe in states' rights. I believe in people doing as much as they can for themselves at the community level and at the private level. And I believe that we've distorted the balance of our government today by giving powers that were never intended in the constitution to that federal establishment. So overall, that's a very reagan sentiment, right? Government is is the problem, not the solution to our problems. And then you have just this, like, I believe in states' rights, you know, kind of like wedged in there. Does that show us that it was really a dog whistle or sort of throwing something out given the particular context and sort of couched within something that maybe he believed or was trying to run on at a more fundamental level? Yeah, again, I, I mean, that general sentiment,
3: uh, you, this is why the context is important. That general sentiment is one, but I think if you read that, that quote and uh, picture it happening in to a City Council in San Francisco right. or to uh, a, a club of businessmen in New York, it would sound much different. But those words said to that crowd, said to a virtually all-white crowd in rural Mississippi, meant something rather different. And, and Reagan knew it. Uh, and all of his aides after this, this speech, after Andrew Young's uh, denouncement, after President Carter calls him out for this speech, uh, and Carter does so from Ebenezer Baptist Church in, in Atlanta. After all these voices have said, hey, that states' rights phrase is a code word for racism, for for segregationists, uh, a lot of Reagan's defenders come out and say, oh, no, no, no! we didn't mean that at all. This wasn't uh, an appeal to segregation. you got it all wrong. States' rights is just a general principle we believe in. Uh, The problem is that a lot of the people who are making this argument for Reagan themselves in the past had supported segregation. So uh, Carol Campbell, who was a representative at the time from South Carolina, a Republican representative, Uh, later becomes the state's first Republican governor in 1986, gained fame in 1970 for uh, being the spokesman of a group that was uh, trying to slow down uh, the pace of integration in the South. And so this phrase, states' rights, certainly meant something to people like Carol Campbell, whether they wanted to admit it to the public at large or not.
2: And Reagan already knew he had vulnerability on this issue. So just the week before, the Ku Klux Klan had come out and said hey, this Republican platform coming out of this convention looks great to us. Um, And Reagan had to disavow the Klan's sort of endorsement of his candidacy. So this was a high-risk proposition in some ways because he was leaning into a negative narrative about the campaign already. And that tells you how important it was to him that he got that phrase in there because he knew exactly what he was opening himself up to, but he believed that's how he was going to win the election.
3: And and a lot of his advisors tell him, you, you can't go there. You can't make this speech there, and he, he waves them off. He'd been invited down, interesting, by, by Trent Lott, who, uh, who has his own interesting history of racial baggage. And it, Lott convinces him that this is a speech uh, you have to make, you have to make it in this place.
1: Right. Just to sort of give some of the context of the reaction to this, you know, sometimes you use the dog whistle and you actually hope that only the people who it's intended for hear it. And everyone heard this, right? I mean, you look at newspapers immediately jumped on it around the country, politicians immediately, as you said, you know, Carter immediately jumped on it. So it's not like they were trying to maybe pull one over. Maybe they were, but it certainly didn't work. It was very clear what they were were going for. Nikki, you mentioned, you know, the Southern strategy, which was basically the Republican Party's electoral strategy to increase support among white voters in the South, you know, often by appealing to to racism, we think of that as something that comes up through the 50s, 60s, 70s. Should we think of this? Th- and then, if you like, for instance, if you look at Mississippi, and Mississippi voted for Carter in the in the election before, and actually only ended up voting for Reagan, but not by that much. So, where does this moment and Reagan's candidacy in 1980 fit into the the larger picture of the Southern Strategy?
2: Yeah, I think one of those things when we talk about the Southern Strategy, people think that like the Civil Rights Act passed, and all of a sudden the Democratic Party was the party of civil rights, and the Republican Party was the party of opposition to it, and all of a sudden you have a solid red South the process of the south becoming republican takes decades it doesn't become really republican until george w bush in the 2000s i mean if you look at the electoral maps in the 1990s at least on a national level it's changing in different ways on the on the local and state level but like bill clinton is doing fine in the south as a southern democratic governor in the 1990s so this is part of a a long process and reagan Again, like he's looking for those votes. He knows that they're available. It's been clear since 1948 when the Dixiecrats bolted from the Democratic Party and picked up some of these Southern states that that's a real vulnerability in the Democratic Party. So he's fulfilling a process that, again, just is taking decades.
3: Yeah, and and as Nikki said, it really starts right after the Dixiecrats. The Republicans are talking about going after the DixieCrat votes, these votes of, of disaffected white Southern Democrats, and picking them off right after 1948. There are all kinds of talks from Senator John Bricker and Senator Carl Munt about combining the conservative Republicans and the Dixiecrats together, maybe in a new party, maybe ditch the Republican name because Southerners still associated with the Civil War. The head of the RNC goes down in 1959, to, sorry, 1952 to Alabama and tells them, look, Dixiecrats and Republicans, we believe the same things. So you guys should vote for our party. So this recruitment uh, of, of white Southern Democrats is underway from the 40s. But as Nikki says, it doesn't really finally complete until the early 2000s. It's a long process of unwinding that long-standing commitment that Southern whites have with the Democratic Party. And it's a process, as as Merle Black and Er Black have described, that really begins from the top down. Uh, And it's the president that really peels this away. So you really start to see it with Goldwater, uh, who uh, in Mississippi picks up 87 percent of the, of the vote in 1964, which is phenomenal. It's his best state. In, in 68, uh, George Wallace is running as an independent. He steals it away. Nixon gets it back in 72. It's his best state in 72. The Watergate derails this process. And the Democrats nominate uh, a, a born-again Christian peanut farmer from Georgia who captures the the native son vote of the South, so he wins Mississippi back in, in, in 76. Reagan takes it in 80, 84. 88, uh, it's gone. It's it's now a solid Republican state. And so that process starts there at the national level. And Reagan's campaign in 1980 is part of this long-term Southern strategy. The political scientists Angie Maxwell and Todd Shields have a great book called The Long Southern Strategy, which link that 1960s Southern strategy with later appeals. Uh, they highlight anti-feminist campaigns and appeals to the religious right in later decades. But they argue it's all... W- part of one approach. Reagan denies this at the time. Uh, There's a great, famous interview with Lee Atwater in 1981 with the political scientist Alexander Lamas, and in it, the audio is available, you can find this, in it, Atwater admits freely that the 1960s Southern strategy that Goldwater and Nixon used was, as he said, based on coded racism, right? Mm -hmm. He insists that in 1980, Reagan had nothing to do with that, that there was no coded racism there. Obviously, I think, Scholars would say his state's rights language was a lot like the stuff Goldwater and Nixon pushed in 64, 68 and 72. But they deny that it's part of a part of that, that continuum. Uh, it, it really is. though.
1: One more thing on this speech. And then I want to talk about where we are right now and, and this kind of coded language as it exists in our politics right now. But one thing, looking back at this speech, I read what Reagan did say, and we've been talking about what he did say. It is worth pointing out what he didn't say, which is he never acknowledges the the civil rights movement in this speech. He never acknowledges the deaths of those three workers that happened, you know, not that long ago. And so, you know, sometimes it's just as important to recognize what doesn't get put on the table as does. I don't know exactly how to phrase this question, Nick. You know, we've been talking about the Southern strategy, and we've and we tend to think of it as something that we just extended it into the 80s, you know, I, I'm i starting to wonder, you know, how much it just sort of is an ongoing through line throughout American politics. Because right now, you know, you could argue that there is still a Southern strategy of sorts being employed by Donald Trump. I mean, he is taking the side of the Confederate flag. He is using this kind of language. He's very much, I think, aligning in the same ways. I don't know if he's used the phrase states' rights.
2: He doesn't need coded language.
1: <laughs> so, you know, how much is the Southern strategy over? And how much does this kind of language still permeate our politics?
2: I would say in two ways. It's not over, but it's changed. And one of those ways is that the Southern strategy is no longer just focused on the South. I mean, this was always true. Like Wallace Hmm. was up campaigning in Wisconsin and uh, trying to get the white racist vote there. And this is sort of a through line now, right? That you've already got a lock on the South. You don't necessarily uh, need it here. You can expand it to um, places in in the north. The other way is that the language isn't as coded anymore. I mean, one of the things that Donald Trump did when he ran for office was he dropped the dog whistle and he picked up the bullhorn. And that's something that you see in his strategy here as well. Like he he's not using states rights at the Neshoba County Fair. He's using shithole countries on Twitter.
1: Or Confederate flags at NASCAR races or whatever. Right. I mean, know this is a much bigger thing that we will touch on at some point, but I do think your lens of Southern versus Northern isn't, you know, that that's maybe disappeared and it's more, I don't know if the divide is really rural and urban or, you know, along education and so forth. But, you know, I mean, again, I will point out what a lot of people have pointed out is, you know, you're just, in many ways, you're just as likely to a Confederate flag in a rural part of the North or the Midwest as you are in the South these days. And so it has switched... I guess it's the the sort of language and the appeal is the same but the geography of it has has shifted. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I would also add and Kevin you might have some thoughts on this that the states' rights argument or the the southern strategy now is more explicitly neo-confederate. And what I mean by that is like when Pat Buchanan ran in the Republican primary in 1992, he doesn't go to the Neshoba County Fair. He goes to Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is basically the Confederate Mount Rushmore with engravings of Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis. And he explicitly starts talking about Southern segregationists and how wonderful leaders they were. And I think that Donald Trump, too, uses that explicitly Confederate symbology and arguments and deep defense, deep personal defenses of the South as part of his appeal.
3: Yeah. And it's it's really unusual for, uh, again, both those guys, Pat Buchanan and Donald Trump, to wrap themselves, I say this as a Southerner, to wrap themselves in the South like that uh, when th- their own personal experiences had nothing to do with the South. And so I think they see in the Confederacy, I give it the most charitable reading they could see a kind of a, a, a traditionalist. Nikki's eyebrows are raised. see <laughs> they, they, they could see a, a traditionalist America. They could see a very old-fashioned sense of of we'll call them values. But it's a, it's a really odd fit, and it's one that they have to force themselves to make. And it doesn't it doesn't fit well, I think, on Donald Trump. I mean, in a lot of ways, watching Trump try to make this pitch as kind of the uh, the champion of the Confederacy it was like watching, you know, Richard Nixon borrow lines from George Wallace back in sixty eight and seventy two. It just it didn't it didn't sound as authentic. But yet Trump is is trying it. And as Nikki said, we're not dealing with uh, dog whistles anymore. It's it's bullhorns. It is incredibly obvious what he is uh, what he's trying to do. We saw this in uh, statements in Char- about Charlottesville, right? We, we've seen it in the uh, the fight over the the Confederate monuments and the support for the Confederate flag and NASCAR. I mean, he is NASCAR is more progressive on this issue than the the president who was from New York city. It's really a bizarre place to be in right now.
1: And, you know, I will, I will add one thing, which is, you know, when you're using a bullhorn people hear it and they react. And, you know, one of the reasons actually this this came up for for us, and we wanted to do this episode, is because we started thinking about this, Nikki, when when Donald Trump had scheduled that rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. on June on Juneteenth at the site of the Tulsa race massacre, and there was pushback, and there was an understanding of the symbology around that. And you and I were chatting about that moment, and and you you brought up this speech by Reagan in 1980 as another moment where that where that symbology crashed. So you know, I think we're we're both. Using bullhorns, but we're also more attuned to it, and there's more pushback, and we're and sort of all out in the open, and we're having that conversation. As we start to wrap up, any sort of final thoughts about how this fits into the 1980 election in general, I and mean, then I guess like Reagan's presidency. I mean, it doesn't. The I don't think of the 1980 election as as f- sort of one that played out along racial resentment terms? I don't think of Reagan's presidency as one that hinged on that. Maybe this forces us to rethink his presidency, or how do you see this fitting in?
3: Well, it certainly recovers the white South for the Republicans. It, it kind of, it corrects the, uh, what what they all had insisted, and I think we're right, that 76 was an aberration, uh, and the South had, had been locked up by Nixon in 72, and Reagan reclaimed it in 80 and 84, and, and Bush again in 88. Uh, and so the solid South becomes solidly Republican. The racial angle is certainly there. Uh, There are certainly real objections uh, the civil rights leaders have to the Reagan record in the 80s. It's not usually something we think of in in the foreground with his administration, but uh, the complaints are certainly there at the time.
2: Yeah. I mean, try to think of this as kind of the kinder, gentler racist policies of the Reagan era, because what this shows us is his early facility with this kind of dog whistle politics. And that mm-hmm. could be him talking about welfare queens, but then also the policy consequences of that, which is scaling back welfare that could help poorer families and people of color, as well as you know his belief that okay, we'll give you the civil rights movement in the 1960s, but civil rights has just gone too far. And so his stance is against things like affirmative action. And so I think it helps us begin to understand the way that racist policies would weave their way through the Reagan administration and why he doesn't necessarily have, generally speaking, a rap as a racist among most Americans. In
3: 1984, uh, Roger Wilkins of the NAACP writes an editorial for The Nation called Smiling Racism, which is all Mm -hmm. about the way in which the Reagan administration, in his view, had put a positive, happy face
1: on on
3: racist and discriminatory
1: policies all right we're going to leave it there for our sunday edition talking about the 1980 speech at the neshoba county fair thank you kevin m cruz for for joining us for these last two episodes this was really great so um where can people see your work
3: uh i'm everywhere you don't want me to be uh okay uh, (laughs) bookstores the social media Uh, who knows all right i may show up in your backyard and and read something
1: (laughs) (laughs) uh and nicole hammer of columbia thanks to you as always
2: thanks so much jody
1: This Day in Esoteric Political History is a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX. Our researcher and producer is Jacob Feldman. Thanks to everyone who has reached out with comments and potential topics and reactions to our new Sunday editions. They are all much appreciated. We read them all. I try and respond to them all. You can email us thisdaypod at gmail.com. There's also a contact form at thisdaypod.com. My name is Jody Evergan. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.
2: I know that in speaking to this crowd... But it has to be a 90% Democrat. No!
1: No! No! I just meant by party affiliation. I didn't mean how you feel now. <laughs> I was a Democrat most of my life myself. Then decided that hey, well, there well, were right. things that needed to be changed.
0: It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know it does have an impact, though? Money. You can call it lobbying. You can call it super PAC spending. You can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia.